I'm Hattie Crisell, the Acting Features Director of Grazia Magazine, and this is Grazia Life Advice. If you haven't tuned in before, every week I speak to women worth listening to and I ask them to share six pieces of advice that they live by and the worst piece of advice they've ever received. Gina Martin didn't start out in the world of politics. She was working in advertising when a horrible experience at a festival gave her the impetus to fight for change. I'll let her explain in her own words what happened, but it's thanks to Gina that a law against upskirting came into force this April. I met Gina here at Grazia's office and I can tell you that she is a natural-born activist. She's full of enthusiasm, passion and great ideas. She's also written Be The Change, a new book which tells us all how we can start making a difference on the issues we care about. And she shares some great advice from that. A little note before we get started, this will be the last episode for a little while as Grazia Life Advice is going on a summer holiday. So make sure you subscribe and you'll know as soon as it returns. But in the meantime, let me know what you think of this episode with the hashtag Grazia Life Advice. Over to Gina. Welcome Gina Martin to Grazia Life Advice. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you and you're here to talk about your new book, Be The Change, A Toolkit for the Activist in You. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure a lot of people listening will already know your story, but would you briefly tell us now how you've ended up in this situation where you're writing this inspiring book about activism and what your own tale was yes so 2017 um i was at a festival with my sister and i was waiting for the kids to come on stage it was a really hot day and i was being hit on by a group of guys that i didn't know and rebuffed them as many times as i possibly could before they got angry and what transpired is that two of them or we think it was one guy but the two of it was two that I saw really um, took photos of my skirt of my crotch without me knowing and then sent the photos around to the whole group um, and I saw one of them on his phone looking at the photos grabbed the phone got into a bit of a scuffle with him and then ran off to the police with the phone he ran after me and I handed in everything the phone the picture and the guy and effectively the police told me there wasn't anything they could do so and what so why could, was there nothing they could do at that point it's an interesting one because technically there was something they could do there was a very old common law that they could have used to prosecute but it was a public nuisance order mm-hmm. and to stick that on a sexual offense effectively is of what upskirting is yeah it doesn't really fit yeah so it was just not worth their time and resource and they knew it was going to be hard so they just said sorry we can't really help you and I looked into law and then found out that upskirting hadn't been, uh, has never been a sexual offence here, but it had been in Scotland for 10 years and kind of was incredibly angry yeah. <laughs> and just decided to try and do something about it on any level and just give it a go, which effectively kind of evolved into a political and media campaign to change the law in England. So how did, you, how did you even start out? How did you get to the point where, because I think for most of us, you know, there's so many things that we'd like to do something about, but the thought of actually doing it just seems too daunting and too huge a challenge. You know, where did you start? It's really interesting because I feel, I still feel like that now, even though I've done one of the things and a big thing. Yeah. Um, and spoiler alert, we're successful, but yay. we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I started out really not knowing what I was doing. Yeah. And I think most activists probably started that way. 
I started with a social media campaign. I'd worked in advertising for sort of six years as a creative and I knew the power of social media and also knew that it was a science. I think we think of it as this kind of nebulous thing that kind of happens to some people and they get loads of followers <laughs> and they wake up one day. Maybe that does happen to some people for sure, but it's there is definitely a science to it. Yeah. So I kind of started with a small scale social media campaign and then I found out that this was happening in a huge numbers to kids in school and to, to women all over. So disgusting. Awful. And that kind of led me to, to um, develop that campaign into a bigger one and then to kind of kick it up a notch once I'd done media and to try and take it to Parliament, which was kind of, even now when I look back, kind of a mad decision to make. And was that about finding a sympathetic MP and getting in that way? Or did you literally show up at Westminster and, <laughs> you know, campaign outside? Or It was about... Um, I partnered with a global law firm called Gibson Dunn and my lawyer, Ryan Whelan, who's a very good friend now, he was 29 at the time, I was 25, and we kind of came up with a political strategy of how we were going to basically build an army of MPs across all parties to support um, a solution that we'd already come up with. So we went up and down the country, well, Ryan did this part, getting all the best law authorities to um, agree with and sign off on um, new legislation for England and Wales before we even considered going to Parliament, did Mm -hmm. all the work up front. And then from there, it was just about meeting with as many MPs as we could possibly to basically support this piece of paper and then table a bill that would change the law and would create an act that changes the law. That process, just meeting with MPs, went on for a year. Yeah. Um, And then another year for the bills that we tabled. Yeah. I mean, huge, huge process. Mm. And um, so tell us a bit more about what the outcome was. So the outcome was, well, there was a possible outcome. There was first bill, yeah, which was a private member's bill to change or amend Section 67 of the Sexual Offences Act 2003, which would make upskirting a specific offence under English and Welsh law, which would make it a sexual offence, which means victims have anonymity, so they can come forward and be protected, that perpetrators have like a range of punishments. Because right now, uh, not right now, because we changed the law. Yay! Sorry. <laughs> Love that. Back Thank, then. Previously, yeah. <laughs> previously. The only thing that kind of came from a prosecution of outraging public decency, which is what they were trying to prosecute upskirting under, even though it's been around 200 years and it was a, the same thing you prosecute for someone weighing in a field. They'd right. get a fine. And yeah. no one would know that they'd done it. They'd have no record of it. And there was no real proportionate punishment. So now what we what we changed it to was, um, yeah, a sexual offence. And it means that there's, you know, fines. They go on the Sexual Offences Act if they're doing it multiple times to kids or to women and they're kind of, it's a constant habit. Mm. And up to two years in prison for the worst cases. So we have like really proportionate punishments now for what before we had nothing. Yeah. And we had a bill that we tabled for that. And then that was um, objected to by an MP and that kind of died. And then to react to that, we tabled a government bill that went over every MP's head and it was the Ministry of Justice tabled that bill. And then we just saw that through for a year, but there's, you know, it was 12 process, but to get a bill through. So that was quite heavy. Yeah. We got there in the end. We got there in the end. When did you get there? When was the Technically, final? we got there at the beginning of the year. Okay. But so effectively we signed off on the last stage at the House of Lords. I was in the House of Lords when that happened. It's quite interesting because I always get asked like, where were you when you found out? It's like, find out. I did the whole bloody thing. Like, <laughs> I was there every stage of the way. Um, but me and Ryan and my family all went to the House of Lords and sat in the, the little gallery and watched the last stage go through, which is when basically they couldn't turn back. The last stage had been done and it just meant the Queen had to sign it off. And that was in January. Then the Queen signed it off and everyone got very excited thanks, about that. Your match. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Lizzie. Her, her match. found a pen. <laughs> yeah. Your match. <laughs> um, and then the kind of final stage was uh, last month, which means that the law is now usable. So you can now prosecute with that law that we created, which is kind of the bit that makes it feel real, I think. 
Yeah, that that's incredible. I mean, thank you on behalf of oh, women of no this country. <laughs> um, so that was presumably what has sparked you writing this book. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about the book. So the book was written because I think I needed to write the book that I needed when I'd started. I think taking on something in activism, whether or not it's at a legal level, like minor political level, or even just starting something small in your school or community or whatever... I think we have this constant feeling where we need to ask for permission and we don't really know how to do it and we feel kind of paralysed by all the things we want to change. And the first thing I did at the beginning of the campaign was Google how to change the law, which nothing came up, obviously. (laughs) And I think back to that moment often where I'm like, I had to figure all this out. And it kind of is the same feeling I have in school when I came out of school and was like, how do you do taxes? Yeah. Like, I'm never going to use Pythagoras theory, probably ever, but I don't know how to do my taxes. How has that happened? And I feel like activism is such a critical part of society and it should be such a big part of where we go now. I think the regular person trying to change things, not waiting for, you know, the government to do everything and not waiting for the power structures to do everything. I think we need to take kind of hold of our society now and do it together. That it feels like there needed to be a book that I needed at the beginning that told me how to write a press release and get it out, how to use social media on basic levels for an awareness campaign how to walk into a meeting with authority figures that you're nervous about and scared of and how to hold it together, how to, you know, bounce back after like a perceived failure, how to get press, like all these things that you really have to figure out yourself. No one can tell you that. So it's like, I'm not the person to hold the cards close to my chest. Like activism isn't about that. It's about doing something and being like, here's all the information, go and do it yourself. And that was why I wrote it because I just, I needed to get that out and also get a lot of questions. So now I can go, it's all there. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully it's helpful. That's fantastic. So you said you used to work in advertising. Are you? Is this now your day job? Are you now Gina Martin activist? Yes, I am. Full stop. I am what? activist and writer. Yeah, yeah. So I left my full time job in February, yeah. and I had a full time job during the whole campaign, and that was quite hard to hold down. But you know, I don't come from. I'm a working class scales family. I don't have any money. Like I live in the most <laughs> expensive city in the world. Um, so that was something I just had to do, and I'm privileged now to be able to have left that position and design my own career. Um, but going forward, there's just so much work to do. Like, even with the upscaling campaign, there's so much education to do. I'm going and talking to kids, doing speaking jobs, talking about inequality, talking about sexual violence. That's one thing I care about. There's a million other things I want to change. Yeah. And I feel, like, tired just thinking about it. Yeah. Um, but it means that now I can commit everything to kind of showing other people how to do this too. Because it's a little bit like that old adage that's like, if you, I think this, I think the phrase is, give a man a fish and he'll eat. Teach a man how to fish and he'll eat forever or something like something that something like that but basically i'm trying to do that i'm trying to be like okay i'm not it's not just me going to do it i want my work going forward to show other people how to do this on any level too because yeah. if we can spread that out we'll get to a we much more so much equal society more of a difference yeah totally okay well that's brilliant let's get started on your advice which is also going to be equally brilliant and useful um <laughs> let's hope so tell me about your first piece of good advice so my first piece of good advice is work out your value system Okay, because I think growing up, we get a lot of messages on our value. And I think especially as women, a lot of those are physical, how we show up, how we present and how we behave. And I was very fortunate. My family have just a joke family. Like they're so progressive. My dad's a big feminist. My mom's a big feminist. Just amazing people. And they really instilled in me from the very beginning. The basic thing was my morals and my value system. Mm -hmm. Like what did I put value on? Okay, honesty, optimism, all these kind of things that made me who I was and because I have that value system I think it's very easy for a lot of the rest to fall into place 
Yeah. And I feel like if we spend as much time focusing on the things we care about as the way we looked or how we present, and that's not our fault, I think we'd be in much better place position to have the self-confidence and the self-belief to do things. Yeah. And that's not something that just comes to you. I think we, we feel like it should be something you just know growing up, not things like that. You learn about your value system by reading and self-educating and questioning things. Mm. And I think if you... And living. And, and living and experiences yeah. and meeting people and your relationship, all that kind of stuff. But if that's something that you have in your head to work out, okay, what are my what values? What do I really value in my life? What do I really care about? And what do I not so much or can do without, you know? Having that kind of clarity I think is really helpful because everything else can fall in on top of that yeah yeah I love that so it's a a kind of framework on which you can then start deciding what you actually want to do that's how I feel yeah yeah okay so your um your next piece of advice so my next piece kind of follows on from that which is follow your gut I think it's very easy to get not distracted but redirected of what you think you should do Mm -hmm. or what do people want to see from me you know in in your life in your relationships in your friendships whatever in your career especially where should I I be in five years by 30 what should I have achieved all this kind of stuff we have so many ideas of how the trajectory of our life or career should go I really don't feel like you can go wrong in any of those if you're doing it for the right reasons and I was led almost a huge amount by the feeling in my belly during the campaign Mm. my lawyer who is the most bright academic lawyery lawyer logistical brilliant lawyer yeah ryan and now my friend he says i've got really good instincts which is lovely and he said if you've got good instincts you're a good activist but i genuinely think if you've got good instincts you'll be a happier person yeah so if you follow what's going on in your belly what you follow the things you really care about and you're passionate about them you're more likely to be good at them because that pushes passion pushes you through anything yeah you can get through fear and you get through hard times if you love it so I think following your gut is key. And I know that's super simple, but I think we forget about it often. Yeah. I think we get we get caught up in what we should do. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm sure that you've been asked this question many times before and maybe it's an annoying one. No, but, um, never. Well, wait and see. Okay. But um, <laughs> have you thought about being a politician? And, and if not, I would be interested to know, you know, how you think the two paths vary in terms of what you can achieve. That's a good question. I have been asked that, but actually not a lot. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> I did a panel at um, Westminster not long ago, and I was implored by a baroness on the panel to stand for MP because it was 50-50 for Parliament about getting women in. Yeah. And I kind of accidentally publicly said I probably would at some point. Um, <laughs> I, it's really interesting. I think I would never say never because I actually said I'd never get into politics. That was the one thing I said I'd never do, which is lol, because I'm right here. <laughs> here you are. Here I am. <laughs> but I do think you can make just as much change outside of it. I look at people like Greta Thunberg and and amazing activists and educators and, you know, just brilliant people, Richie Brave, like just really great people who are doing that work because people go into politics to change people's lives and to improve on society, right? That's the baseline. And I think you can absolutely do that without going into politics. Yeah. And I think you have to be a very, very strong character to go into politics. I know Jess Phillips quite, you know, I've worked with her and she's just a very, very morally sound strong person and I think you have to be a very very strong person to go into politics because I I struggled you know and it's a very high pressure situation so I probably would I would never say I would never would do it I don't know what my life's gonna hold but I I do believe that you can do just as much have much just as much effect outside of it as in for sure I mean in some respects you can maybe even have more effect outside of being in a you know being unbiased yeah, and you're not restrained by your party or by and processes you know. and yeah. yeah. So 
And that's what active, we were saying before, that's activism at its best, is it kind of foregoes, often it foregoes the formal processes. Yeah. It takes a different route, it is creative, it bangs down doors. And there is a propensity for you not, you know, to not allow people to do that if you're a politician. You can't really change direction too much or really make cause, kick up too much of a fuss if you're within the institution. But in other, if you're outside, you can agitate more. Yeah. So I, I definitely think you can make just as much, if not more, change from outside. Okay, so your third piece of good advice is never lose your passion or enthusiasm. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about that. So I feel like growing up, I was quite annoying. <laughs> and that's fine. Don't believe you, carry on. <laughs> I was a little bit. It was like, my dad used to say it was like firework going off inside the house. <laughs> so, but that's great, you know. Always was really passionate, was really um, enthusiastic, was like too, cared too much about animals, cared too much about things in school. And I think I saw that for a while as like a positive thing as a person. Compassion is really positive, obviously. But I think I saw it as a a slight problem for me in terms of being taken seriously because I was too loud or too smiley or, you know, really enthusiastic all the time. Or Yeah. And when I looked at what power was and like, the archetype of power being, you know, a politician or a teacher or a guy in a suit who's very measured. You know, I look at Ryan, my lawyer, and he's so unflappable and so, like, you could throw anything at him and he would be convincing and he would sit there and he would come out with a cutting line. That's not who I am. Yeah. I am a chatty, often quite flitty, um, really enthusiastic, loud person. But I've now come to the conclusion that you don't, I don't have to be what I thought power was. Yeah. I can be my own version of that. I don't have to be the guy in the suit. And that actually passion and enthusiasm, you can't teach that to anyone. If you can walk in a room and you want to or go for a job interview and you really want the job, maybe you haven't got the qualifications. So like my boyfriend just got, they made a position for him and he went for an interview for a position that was like five years above what he would ever get. And he, they went, you can come, you're never going to get it, but you can come, we'll just meet you. And they made a position for him because he's so passionate and so enthusiastic about being there. People love that, we feed off that, and we're ready to see that more now. We don't really want to see measured mm, We've had process. enough of that. Yeah, yeah, we're done with that. We want to see people who just like live for what they do and who are excited about it. And we've realised now that you can be this passionate, loud person and still be the person who gets down to work and takes no shit as well you know yeah. so I think yeah you just never quell that for anyone yeah as that type of person what has it been like for you on a personal level to go through this experience where you've been brought into the public eye there's been so much happening you've been under quite a lot of um pressure yeah. and sometimes in a you know good way I'm sure but sometimes probably quite stressful like what has that personal experience been like for you I think it's been difficult but also quite illuminating in a way. I found it quite hard in Parliament. Yeah. Because I had to be a version of myself without losing who I was. But I had to be more diplomatic, obviously, and more strategic in the way I communicated with people. And I think I, at the beginning, was overstepping that a bit. I was trying to be too like what I thought I had to be like in Parliament. Me and Ryan actually had a conversation. And Ryan was like, this is why we work, because I'm the lawyer... And I'm the authoritative, six foot five lawyer, Scottish lawyer who's quite, you know, straight yeah. down, deadpan. And you're the excited, passionate campaigner who's like, and he would say to the people we were working with, don't expect Gina to be any different. She's been through this, it happened to her. She's a campaigner, she's passionate about this. She's started this whole thing from nothing. Of course she's going to be passionate and over the top about it because that's who she is. Yeah. So I learned to be able to communicate in a clear way to be strategic, but still not to dumb down 
you know, who I was, the passion of it, the the enthusiasm, the being loud. Like, I think it's important to still be who you are, but be aware of who you're talking to. Yeah. But I think it would have been too easy for me to go the other way and be like, yes, thank you for having me, which was never <laughs> going to be me, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me about your fourth piece of advice. Okay, so question everything and know your rights. I think we're very used to, up until kind of the last 10 years, we've kind of been fed information and kind of taken it. And for a long time, the channels that the information came through, we sort of trusted them to give us kind of an unbiased opinion and to be completely honest for a long time. We kind of took it as it was. Everything came at face value. And now I think we're getting to a stage where there's so many different channels of information and we're able to seek that out and we're able to question things before and find out information at a rate we never could before. You know, we've never been able to do that. In terms of human rights, that's huge. Yeah. Because... If something happens that you feel came, I didn't feel right about that. I didn't like when I was upskirted. Obviously, I was like, "That's devastating." I don't feel right about that. That's awful. Me five years ago, maybe would have done what I've done for the whole of my life, where I go home and go, "Oh, that was awful," and then just get on with my life. Yeah, well, as most people all of us would. do, we yeah. brush it off because we're taught to brush it off. That's just the fee we pay for being a woman, or you know, from a marginalized gender. But you just you just deal with that because that's how your life's been. Yeah, and I think because of the switch in information, social media, and stuff. I just was like, no, I'm going to look up my rights here. Like, what are my rights? Could could I prosecute? They told me they couldn't do anything. But is that correct? Because that doesn't feel right. Yeah. And I started to question stuff more. And I think if we can get into the habit of questioning things that don't feel quite right to us, we'll be in a much better position. Because actually, if you if you sit around a table with all your family and friends and you go, do you know your rights on this, this, this? I can guarantee that none of us actually do. We couldn't say them. No. Which is terrifying, actually. Because no. yeah. we don't know what how we're protected what we can do about it it's true really yeah. interesting so and it doesn't mean go out now and read up on every right you have like no we're gonna do that <laughs> <laughs> but if something doesn't feel right do your research question it you don't have to sit back and take it we don't have to do that anymore yeah I think it's difficult isn't it I think some people you know I'm in a lucky position because my mum is a lawyer you know some of my a couple of my best friends are lawyers if I'm not sure about what my rights are with something I can quite often get an answer out of one of them but if you don't have access to that it is a matter of going online and trying to yeah Yeah. trying to track it all down it's not really I mean I don't know if maybe they should be doing more to make that information I definitely think they should more readily available yeah I think they definitely should I think there should be much more there should be way more support systems also for all different types of people it's easy obviously for me to sit here and go yeah I'll learn my rights and then I'll know my rights I have a certain amount of rights. A lot of people don't. Yeah. So there needs to be a lot more done around that. But also, are we going to get there soon? I'm not so sure. There's so many human rights violations that are happening consistently that we're trying to change. Yeah. But that's why I think if you have the opportunity and the access and the resources and you can, you should be. Yeah. Actually, that brings us on to your next piece of good advice, which is use your privilege. Yes. Yes, that's true. That's very (laughs) similar. Um, Yeah, I think... We all have a whole host of unearned benefits that we're born with, dependent on our class and our gender, our race, our sexuality, everything. Like it's 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 all a lot of it is forewritten for us. I write about this in the book quite a lot. Where you know people have said to me like, "Oh, it's really great timing," like my campaign because Me Too came out six months later, right? And it's really interesting because it's like it's not about time. This has always been happening. Yeah, yeah, but. I could go, yeah, it's really lucky timing. And I could go, no, I'm not lucky, actually. It's not, I'm not lucky. I've worked really hard for it. And the truth is, is I have worked really hard, but also I've had a whole host of things that have made it way easier for me. Loads yeah. of barriers have been taken down for me because of who I am. I knew that because I was a slim, young, white woman mm. who lives in London with a Mac, working in media, like 
they're going to put me on the front of newspapers yeah because the young white victim who's going against the big dogs like they're going to do that and I wonder whether the words around the pictures in the newspapers that published me would have been the same if I was not a slim white young woman yeah so I just I felt like that was my kind of obligation I didn't I don't know if I necessarily realized it at the very beginning but as soon as I kind of after I started the campaign and the media started happening it was like okay yeah this is kind of my obligation to do this now because it could have happened to someone it could have happened to a a 14 year old or a 13 year old who would have just been terrified and never been able to do anything about it but also I can walk into parliament and I'm not for them an anomaly. They expect me to be there in a way because I'm a white woman. Mm, they understand you. You're, yeah, there, yeah, there's some common ground there. Like, like that should ever be the way the world works. Obviously. Yeah. But you know, I can walk into those spaces and I have a different experience than someone from maybe a marginalised community would have. So I have to use that, and I have to make that kind of a priority now. And and I think we all should be doing that. And that may not be the same privilege I have. We all have different privileges, but. I really think at the stage we're at, I guess asked all the time about feminism and where do you think feminism is going to go next and what is fourth wave feminism? And it's like, I just really want to see fourth wave feminism be about not you anymore if we're, if you're a white woman. Yeah. So it's like, yes, my struggles are valid, totally. But fourth wave feminism should be about using our privilege for all of us now. It has to be a community and it has to be about everyone. So I think it's critical to remember that and especially in activism because activism in itself is a privilege. A, yeah. a mum of two or a father of four who's just trying to keep the kids, get food on the table is not going to be going out there fighting for everyone's rights and that's absolutely fine. But yeah. I can. Yeah. So yeah, I think privilege has a lot to do with it. Um, do you have a particular issue in mind that is your next target? I'm doing a second stage of the campaign which is more broadly on sexual violence and mm-hmm. sexual assault in music venues specifically because we have terrifying rates at music venues it's sort of half of women under 30 have experienced sexual violence or sexual harassment at music venue festivals gigs yeah so i'm doing that um but then i'll be going on to something very different than that um which i'm not going to talk about yet i'm I'm very precious about campaigns they're like they (laughs) i'm like they need to be secret before you know so i can like you'll tell us when it when the time is right that's fine but lots of different stuff yeah i think there's a lot to change yeah so your um, final piece of good advice, tell me about this one. Push through fear. I think that's a really simple thing to say. And it's very hard to do in action. <laughs> yeah. How? <laughs> Just do it, babe. Um, for me, I talk a bit about the activism cure in the book. And effectively, I've, I feel personally like the only real cure for fear is action. Mm-hmm. So, where, you know, you, we think about climate breakdown and we all feel paralysed by it and we don't know what to do. And it's like if we if you incorporate an action into your life, there's some kind of relief there. It really helps you form, A, your identity and your confidence, but also it gets rid of a feeling of helplessness. It makes you feel like you're part of the the good and the change. Mm -hmm. And pushing through fear, although it can often be hard, it is the one thing that by the end of it, the change, because for me, the change in me from this campaign is just huge and it's literally because of the, the fear and that could be fear of walking into that room and having that meeting, that could be the fear of failure, that could be the fear of not having spent enough time with my boyfriend because I'm spending so much time with politicians. Like It could be <laughs> anything. But pushing through and trying your best to get through that fear, whatever that takes, is transformative, I think. And the way you do that, I think, is with the support system. I think it's the people around you. Okay. And I think you have to be very specific about who you have around you. I've, as I've got, and it's easy to say now I'm 27, but as I've got older in my 20s, I've been very, okay, this person is, you know, when you're a kid and you're like, I want to be friends with them because they're cool. Yeah. I was like that until <laughs> 20. And uh, I'm like that now. No, I'm not really. And um, 
And I think there was a lot of people, there's a couple of people in my life who were lovely people, but just didn't, you know, I didn't feel like I could sit with them for two hours and get, you know, during the campaign and be like, Chope objected to my bill, can we just talk about it for five hours? You know, they don't want to hear that. They don't, they're not in that world. Now I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by my core group of friends that will sit there for hours on end and listen to me and really want me to succeed and love me so much. And I feel exactly the same with them and we'll do anything to support each other. And I just feel like if you're doing this type of work or you're pushing through fear or you're dealing with anything difficult in your life, you need to build a support system that there's no apologies and they only make you feel great. Like I just, there's no time for people in your life that make you feel a bit crap (laughs) at all. And and you push through fear if you have a good support system. I think it really helps. Yeah. Your parents must be absolutely over the moon with what you've achieved are they yeah they are they're so proud yeah every time I do media my dad's like when's it on what are you doing I'm like I've no idea I've just been put in different studios dad and he's like why do you never tell me get them people to talk to my people I'm like, oh, God. he's so proud it's so sweet they're both so proud it's lovely <laughs> that's so sweet um so that brings us on to the worst piece of advice you've ever heard tell me about this I really struggled with this everyone does it's a tricky one it is a tricky one in my work specifically this one was something that I had to like I took on for a bit and then had to be like, throw out. Oh, which, really? Yeah, which was look closely at your competitors and keep your enemies close. So okay. they're two sort of separate things. So keep your enemies close is like a very famous phrase. Look closely at your competitors. It's kind of the same thing. So Is I w- that something that you were told in the advertising industry? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, in work. So we're working on a brand and we'd have to know everything about the competitors to know what they're doing, what space they're in, what their audience is, their market, everything. So I got into this, I guess, like habit of doing that in the beginning of the activism stage. And it wasn't other activists, but it was just like looking at what everyone's doing around this issue. Right. And although, because I, I write in the book about research. So like, you want to know what people are doing as in, oh, she's like, if I was working on period poverty, I'd want to know Amika George and be like, can I help you? Shall we get together? Let's work together. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between looking at what other people are doing and getting inspiration from it and joining forces and being distracted and comparing yourself to your opposition mm-hmm. and I think at the beginning of the campaign I was doing that a fair bit too much and it meant that I wasn't focusing on what I was doing as much mm-hmm. and then my confidence was a bit crumbling because I was looking at other people and being like oh I'm not doing that should I be doing this and really especially in activism every campaign every activist is like a fingerprint you can't have the same because it depends on what the, what you're going for your objective how you're working what the strategy is there's no way of comparing activism so I think at the beginning that was probably not good for me because yeah. I, I would have I probably would have lost my um, trajectory if I'd been I'd kept my eyes so close on what other people were doing. Yeah. So I think in business, sure, keep an eye on your competitors. When you're doing this kind of work or when you're pushing for change, don't keep your blinks on and go forward because you'll lose your confidence if you're staring at what everyone else is doing. Yeah, just keep your eyes on the on the goal. Kind totally, of totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much. That's been so interesting. And we're very excited at Grazia to see what you do next. Yay. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much to Gina Martin. And you can buy her new book, Be the Change, now. I hope that you're loving the Grazia Life Advice podcast. If so, please help me out by subscribing, rating it, reviewing it, or sharing it, or preferably all four. 